Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church of Imperial Valley. We would love to help you plan your visit, so we encourage you to visit our website at www.cccciv.org for service times and our events calendar. Or get the app. You'll find the Christ Community Church IV mobile app in your app store for Apple or Android devices. All right, turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 9. The book of Esther, chapter 9. This morning we're going to talk about a Jewish festival called Purim, and you'll see why it's called Purim as we get into the text. But as we approach Jewish festivals this year, we want to touch on them and bring them to the attention of people because they speak really of our spiritual life too. Our roots go to the Old Testament in fact, all the festivals actually point to Christ. Purim is not one of the main ones that you would see in Leviticus 23 instituted by the Lord. This came many years after Moses. So here we are, Esther chapter 9. And let's begin reading in verse 16. It says, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa, or your version may say Shushan, same thing, ESV is Susa. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a, a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Anti-Semitism is alive and well in our culture today, but anti-Semitism is not new. Anti-Semitism has existed since the beginning of God's people. Anti-Semitism is basically a hatred towards the Jews. It is a hostility towards the Jews. It is an attitude against the Jews. And in Esther, we find an attempt here to annihilate the Jews. And that's what the book of Esther comes down to. God's deliverance from an annihilation of his people, God's chosen people, and whenever somebody or a nation comes against God's people, it never turns out well for them. It never turns out well for them. We can look through history and we could see historical accounts, biblical accounts of when 
people had risen up against God's chosen people and God intervened in a way that defended his people and defeated the foes of his people. In fact, usually, well, when you're looking at Israel's most severe enemies, when God intervened and put them to rest, it usually turned into a feast. If you look at Pharaoh and you see how he oppressed God's people and after God was done delivering them, in the midst of their delivery, the celebration of Passover was instituted. Celebration of Passover. When you get into the intertestamental period, when you look at the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a guy named Antiochus Epiphany who was a madman who tried to take out the Jews. In fact, he was just horrible towards the Jews. He sacrificed pigs on the altar in the Holy of Holies. He slaughtered pigs and wiped the blood all over the temple. He would butcher pigs and he would shove parts of pigs down the Jewish people's mouths. But when God was through with him, that turned into the celebration of Hanukkah which is celebrated every year by the Jews in the month of December. That is their Christmas, so to speak. When you look at Hitler, Hitler is a madman as well who came against the Jewish people. His goal was to exterminate the Jews, and he attempted to do so. God intervened in that situation, and when the Jews were liberated, they gained independence. They were reborn as a nation in 1948. And they celebrate to this day, every year, their independence that came from God. When you look in the book of Esther, you see the enemies of God coming against His people, God delivering them, and that becomes the Feast of Purim. Purim. The, the Jews celebrate it every year because of what God did in this very book. Esther is the only book in the Bible, by the way, that doesn't contain the name God. You will not find God once throughout the entire book, but yet you see God working. You see God working through the entire book. You see his providence. You see his sovereignty. He's kind of working behind the scenes. You see his fingerprints left everywhere. Sometimes you and I we may use that term. We don't see God working. We don't feel God working in our lives. We don't see God moving in our lives like at other times, but that does not mean that God isn't at work behind the scenes. God is always working on behalf of his people. In the book of Esther, there's a man named Haman who hates a Jewish man named Mordecai, along with the rest of the Jews. Haman is an anti-Semitic to the bone. Mordecai was a solid Hebrew man. He's, according to Esther 2.5, he was a solid Hebrew from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a descendant of Kish, Saul, King Saul. And the, the scriptures tell us that Saul was as well. Saul was the son of Kish. He was Israel's first king. Haman is the bad guy in the story. And it says he was an Agagite, a descendant of King Agag, who was an Amalekite. He was king of the Amalekites. And the battle we read of in Esther is between these two men, first and foremost. Mordecai, a descendant of Saul, King Saul, and Haman, a descendant of Agag, who was king of the Amalekites. Now, you may recall what happened during the reign of Saul. 
500 years earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God sends King Saul in to destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau and they were sworn enemies of the Israelites. When God was delivering the people out of Egypt, bringing them through the promised land, the Amalekites would attack the Israelites. The Israelites were unarmed. They were somewhat defenseless at times. God had to protect them during that time. But God cursed the Amalekites. He cursed the Amalekites. We read of it in Deuteronomy 25, 19, where it says, Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So God curses the Amalekites. He's going to blot them out from memory. And the Lord was going to use King Saul to do that. In 1 Samuel 15, we read of the story. But Saul was disobedient to the Lord. And when Samuel approached Saul, he said, did you get rid of all the Amalekites? Did you do as the Lord had instructed? And Saul said, yes. And then Samuel says, what is the bleeding of sheep that I hear in the background then? In fact, Saul did not even kill Agag. He never killed him. Samuel had to finish him off. But regardless, what we see is some Agagites had made it through. And Haman is a descendant of that. The situation with Saul and the Amalekites teaches us that partial obedience is really disobedience to the Lord. When the Lord asks us to do something, when the Lord instructs us to do something, we are required to follow through in full obedience. Otherwise, the consequences are going to come back and they're going to bite you later on. Partial obedience is really disobedience in the eyes of the Lord. The Amalekites were always warring against Israel and it's a picture of the flesh. It is a picture of the flesh warring against the spirit in the scriptures. We know that we have this war between the flesh and the spirit. And the Amalekites are actually a picture of the flesh that we war with. And we are supposed to take care of all of the Amalekites in our life. We are to put the members of our body to death. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5.24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so it is a picture of the war that ensues with the flesh and the spirit. But here in the book of Esther, we see it between a Jew-hating man named Haman, a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, and a Jewish man named Mordecai, who is a descendant of King Saul. And through Haman comes the threat to the entire Jewish people in Persia at the time, and even Though God's name is not mentioned once in the book, we see him actively working throughout the book. In the opening chapters of the book of Esther, you see divine providence already taking place. In the first chapter, there is Queen Vashti married to King Ashuerus, and King Ashuerus throws this banquet, and they're partying. Everybody's getting drunk, including the king and all of his buddies, and what he says, he tells Vashti, his queen, to come in. He wanted to show her off to his buddies, and she ends up refusing, which put her life really in jeopardy. But for her, for a Persian woman to unveil herself, 
was really to tarnish her reputation, and she didn't want to do that. She would rather risk what would happen and the consequences. As a result, the king removes her as queen and is now going to set up for Queen Esther to come on the scene in chapter 2 of the book of Esther. We see God's hand moving once again because Esther is a Jewish woman among all the other women in Persia and she was actually raised in Mordecai's house because her parents died and so now Uncle Mordecai is raising Queen Esther but the king needs a new queen so he looks throughout the entire kingdom they throw on a beauty pageant they parade the women in front of the king they want to pick the most beautiful person the king is looking for that one that's going to catch his eye and when we read of that we see that Esther gets special favor and special treatment she's looked specially gorgeous and the king says I want her I want her I want her as my wife so we see where already Esther moves now in as the queen Queen Vashti is removed the Queen Esther now takes over and she is put in a position of power. She is put in a position of influence. And towards the end of the chapter 2, we read of an interesting situation that takes place. Two of the king's men are angry with the king and they want to take him out. Mordecai happens to catch wind of the plot and he knows that there's a threat on the king's life. So he tells Esther, the queen, Go tell the king that there is a threat on his life, that there's a plot against his life. Queen Esther takes the news to the king. The king investigates it, finds out that the affairs are true. Those two men in the king's court were then hung and they were killed. But an interesting thing comes up towards the end of the chapter. The very last verse, it says this. It says that this was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So what Mordecai did was actually recorded in a book of records called the Chronicles. They were the Chronicles of the king. And they would, the Chronicles were a place where they would record certain events. They would record certain important things that would rise up and things that the king would do and things that the king would accomplish. Whatever was important, kind of like our history books. When we go to school, we would open up history books and we'd learn about George Washington or we would learn about Abraham Lincoln or we would learn about another famous leader. Well, the kings had their chronicles too and they would record all these events. Now, when you come to the third chapter, you find that the king appoints a man named Haman as his right-hand man. This guy becomes the prime minister. And as he becomes the prime minister, he is given an extreme amount of power. And everybody is to bow to him. When Haman walks through town, you're to bow to him. When he goes through the city streets, you are to bow to him. And Haman was one of those guys who was so full of himself, he lived off the praise of others. He lived off the praise of others. He wanted the accolades from the community. He wanted people bowing to him. And he really set himself up to be God-like. And everybody bowed to him, except one guy, a guy named Mordecai. The Jewish man named Mordecai says, I'm not going to bow to him. I refuse to bow to this guy. And this infuriated, infuriated Haman. He was just livid with anger. And so he's going to hatch a plot. And he is going to come up with a plan to annihilate 
all the Jewish people. It wasn't just Mordecai he was worried about. In his mind, he thought, well, if this Jewish man does not bow down to me and give me the praise, then there's probably other Jews out there that won't do the same thing. And so he comes up with this plan, this devious plan, where he is going to annihilate and exterminate all the Jewish people. Now, to determine the day that he's going to do this, he seeks the Persian gods. And in seeking the Persian gods, he casts lots. He takes these lots and he casts them to determine the exact day that was right to take out the Jewish people. Now, that's important in the book of Esther, that idea of lots, that idea of lots being casted. So he, he casts the lots and he finds out this is the perfect day to kill the Jewish people. The next thing he does, he goes to the king. He's got to sell his plan to the king. He's got to make sure the king buys in so he can come up with an edict, a decree that would murder all the Jewish people in the Persian kingdom. So Haman goes to the king. He's his right-hand man. He has every right to bring stuff to his attention. He goes to the king and he tells him of this plot. He says, look, this is what's going on. This is what we need to do. And by the way, when we take out all the Jewish people, you're going to have an extra 10,000 pounds of gold to your treasury. And to a king who's been at war, to a king whose treasury has been somewhat depleted, this was very enticing to King Ahasuerus, that he would think, man, that is a lot of money. I can beef up the national treasury once again. And so that was his selling point. That was one of Haman's selling points. But the sad thing is the money to the king actually blinded, blinded him to the severity of the situation. Don't forget that his own wife is Jewish herself, but he doesn't know it yet. And so the king says, you know what? That sounds pretty good. And they put out the decree, and the decree goes out to kill all the Jews on a certain day. Here's what Esther 3 Verse 13 says, listen to these words. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So the decree goes out, but the Jews don't know it. The decree goes out to the leaders of the provinces and they're going to get instructions. And on that day, based on those lots being cast, they are going to turn on the Jews. They're going to butcher them. And they're going to plunder them. They're going to take their money. They're going to take their property and everything else. And the plan was set in motion. But in chapters 4 and 5, we read where Mordecai finds out about this atrocity. He finds out Mordecai, always God has him positioned in just the right place. So Mordecai hears of this, and he goes to Esther, and he says, Esther, listen to me. You have been given this position of power and influence, and here's the deal. The Persians are going to wipe out the Jews based off of a decree that Haman has put in motion. And you are the king's wife, so you need to go to the king. And you need to bring this to the king. And you need to plead on behalf of our people. In fact, I love it. Mordecai says, according to the scriptures, 
Mordecai says this, that you were appointed at such a time as this, that Esther was in the right place at the right time according to history. I mean, don't we see that all the time? Don't we see God's hand? You think, man, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. No, God is actually orchestrating our lives. God is working on our lives, and yeah, amen. And so, so we see this happening, but Esther says, wait a minute. I haven't been with the king for 30 days. And for me to go approach the king is going to put my life at risk. Because a queen just couldn't just march into the presence of the king, especially if she hadn't been with him for 30 days. And she remembers vividly Vashti, the queen before her, that this king is nobody to toy with. And so she's fearful. She's afraid. What Mordecai is asking her to do is to put her neck on the chopping block. That you've been appointed at such a time as this. And Mordecai says this. Not only that, If you don't go and you don't plead the cause of our people, you're going to die anyway because you're a Jew too and it's only a matter of time before they find out that you're a Jew. So she's in this turmoil. And what does she do? She asks the people to pray and fast. That's what she calls for this time of prayer and fasting. She's wanting the Lord to speak to her. She's wanting the Lord to speak to the people. She's wanting... Do I go into the king? Do I risk my life? What am I supposed to do? You ever been there before? You ever been there where where you were challenged to do something very hard, very difficult, that it had something to do with the integrity of the Lord? And you were asked to do it, but you were afraid. You were afraid of losing that relationship. You were afraid of losing your job if you blew the whistle on one of your managers. You were afraid. to. You knew it was the right thing to do, but you had this quandary going on. And there was this fear. What does God want me to do? I think of the Holocaust when Christians knew what they should have done in Germany. And there they are worshiping in churches. And some of the history recorded says they were singing hymns as the rail cars were going by. And they would hear the sound of the rail car. And they would just sing louder. And they knew those rail cars were filled with Jews headed to their death. But they didn't act on it. They didn't act on it. And so here in the book of Esther, we see this happening. I don't know where you've been before. I don't know the circumstance that you had to run up against before, but sometimes God asks us to do things that are pretty risky. Sometimes God asks us to do things that put our own reputation in jeopardy. Sometimes God will ask us to do things that that become pretty risky with the relationships that we have, even with family. When it comes to bringing them the gospel, we're like, man, do I do it or not? I love mom and dad. I love my sister. I I, I just don't want to do this. And you're at this position where, what do I do? Do I honor God? Because the Bible says in Proverbs that the fear of man is a snare. And so here she is, and then she decides she's got to go through with it. She's got to go through with this, and so she puts her neck on the chopping block, and when she gets before the king, what's going to happen? Is the king going to extend the scepter, meaning what do you want? How can I help you? What's your wish? Or is he going to snap his fingers and call in the guards and have her put to death? And so she's there before the king, and the king extends the scepter and says, I love that. He wants to know, what do you want? What's your wish? And you know what she says? One thing about Esther, you got to know that she was 
gentle as a dove, but she was wise as a serpent. That woman can think. That woman had it going on in her head, and she, she said, you know what? What I really want, I want you, and I want your prime minister, your right-hand man, I want you both to come to a banquet that I'm going to hold. Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. Christ Community Church has campuses in El Centro, Calexico, and Brawley with services in English and in Spanish. Your kids are going to love our kids' church. Plus, we have a lively youth ministry and young adults group. You're welcome to call the church office at 760-337-9400 with your questions. Or leave us a message on the Christ Community Church IV mobile app, the cccivy.org website, or direct message us on social media. We are really looking forward to meeting you. So again, the website is www.cccivy.org or call 760-337-9400 so we can plan your visit.